This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You might remember Ontario government uh, came out with uh, a study that it was go- it was going to happen in, in a couple of different communities, Hamilton being one, I believe Lindsay was another, uh, in, in which uh, bringing in a, a basic income, uh, I'll let Tom Cooper explain more about that. Uh, now they've tapped into a few local agencies to get uh, help get more participants involved in the study. Uh, as of last month, the government had mailed out about 14,000 basic income application packages to randomly selected households. Uh, that being said, uh, rumors are floating around. Nobody's biting on this. Uh, don't know if that's the case. Don't know if it's a case of lack of education on this. Let's bring in Tom Cooper, Director, Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. He is with us now. Tom, thanks for taking the time to join us. Hey, it's Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks again. Uh, your thoughts on this. First of all, let's get some clarification uh, basically talk about this whole program, how it's supposed to work, what the idea and the objective is here. Yeah, it's interesting, Scott, because the basic income pilot was, was in a sense, dropped on Hamilton uh, in the spring by the premier. She uh, blew into town um, with the provincial media in tow and announced that the provincial government was going to really run an experiment, um, and it's a bit of a social policy experiment here in Hamilton, and as you mentioned, in Lindsay, as well as in Thunder Bay. So 4,000 people across the province uh, for the next three years will be given the opportunity to participate in the basic income pilot. And and that basically means they will get an assured income with very few strings attached uh, of uh, about $17,000 a year if if you're a single person. And uh, they'll be they'll be able to I think monitor um, some of the uh, benefits of of receiving that income, and it could potentially go to people who are currently working, um, maybe working several part time jobs, but just not able to uh, to escape that cycle of poverty. Uh, it could go to people who are currently on provincial social assistance programs, and as you and I have talked about many times in the past. Scott, uh, social assistance is woefully inadequate. A uh, single person on Ontario Works uh, today receives about $706 a month to live on, and that's supposed to cover uh, rental housing and food and utilities and uh, being able to move around the community and be able to afford a telephone. Um, so unfortunately for them, often the numbers don't add up. Um, so basic income is about twice as much as, as that. It's... Uh, uh, around $1,400 a month. And um, so it's really a way for the provincial government to see how people's lives change and do they stay in, uh, in affordable housing or, uh, or are they more likely to, uh, uh, or less likely anyway, to, to become homeless as, as many people are finding the increasing cost of rental housing uh, a huge challenge particularly uh, in Hamilton and, and the GTA, are people who are receiving a basic income healthier. And uh, we know people who are experiencing poverty are far more likely to, to contract a, uh, a chronic disease or suffer from depression. So there'll be some interesting studies done on that. And I think the other key point is around delivery, because we know social assistance, for example, has has been really a, a very regressionary way um, to to provide income to people, and there's lots of really stupid rules out there. And, mm-hmm. and your listeners who have been on the system could probably attest to this. But um, uh, a basic income 
again has very few uh, strings attached. Uh, you get so this is a combination of a lot of different services bundled together. Uh, those, those taken away, and and this sort of is a basic means to survive. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So advantages in your mind, advantages and disadvantages at this point pre-study. What looks good? What doesn't look good about this? What are we concerned about? What what looks good? Well, in in terms of looking good, there is. The increase in income, of course, uh, particularly for people uh, who are on provincial social assistance programs. And if they're on Ontario disability, uh, there is an extra $5,000 sort of a disability allowance that people are able to get. Um, If people are working... uh, So you wouldn't lose your disability on this. You wouldn't lose your disability, but you have to come off the system, uh, the Ontario Disability Support Program system, although you'd still be getting getting, um, more money um, you wouldn't have necessarily those that same level of support uh, that you might get uh, if, if you're on ODSP right now. Uh, people who are on social assistance typically get a drug card, uh, which helps uh, with the cost of medication, but there's very few other benefits people will receive um, if they're on, uh, on a basic income. Uh, and people who are working will be able to keep... Um, uh, keep some of that income from working, uh, keep 50% of their income from working up to a certain level. And uh, that's certainly good because uh, one thing we wouldn't want to see is people you know, quitting their jobs because uh, yeah. they, they aren't able to, uh, to keep that income. Is the incentive the there enough for that not to happen, Tom, so that they keep, you know, this is a supplement in addition to uh, and, and to give them some sort of... Uh, um, a determination and, yeah. and, and, you know, future that, that they can move forward with this. Yeah, and I think that's one thing the government wants to test through this pilot. But when we look at other places that have done similar experiments, there was a, a Mincom experiment, which is very similar, uh, done in Manitoba in the 1970s. And, and the results from that, well, it wasn't analyzed immediately. It was analyzed years later, but really did show that people who were receiving a basic income in Manitoba uh, wanted to keep their jobs and and actually looked to improve their skills when they were receiving a little bit more income. Uh, One of the things we often talk about for people, whether they're on social assistance or the working poor, is they're often going from crisis to crisis because they simply don't have enough financial resources to deal with the challenges they run into. With a basic income, even though it's it's not exceptionally high, uh, it's still below the poverty line. Uh, 17000 a year is still below a poverty line. But um, it does give people a few more opportunities, a few more options to, to find and keep affordable housing, uh, to stay healthier, you're a- maybe able to buy medication if you get sick, so you don't have to end up missing work if that's uh, uh, if that's something you're doing, or or you know potentially uh, check yourself into uh, to the to the emergency room uh, if, if the situation becomes even more dire. Um, so I think these are all things the provincial government wants to look at. And uh, really, basic income is becoming a, a focal point of social policy, not here, not just here in Canada, but really around the world. And as we look ahead to the future, where potentially there's going to be more automation and, and fewer jobs available to people, uh, is there going to be a base level of income available uh, so that people can not only meet all their basic needs, and ensure they have food and housing and, and, and all the other necessities in life, but also enough money so that people can continue to purchase uh, products and can continue to keep the economy going. Because, 
you know, if we if people keep losing jobs uh, to automation, there's going to be fewer people buying products, and that, and that has the potential to really collapse the economy down the road. Um, so these are all reasons why uh, why lots of academics and advocates and other people are looking at uh, basic income as a possible future social policy, and that's why they're testing it here in Ontario. Um, obviously, um, the government has tapped into a couple of local agencies to give this a little bit of a push. Why do you think this is, nobody's biting at this point? Oh, I shouldn't say that, but not well, as much as what they thought. That's yeah, the rumor it's anyway. Not, it's not all that inaccurate, Scott. You're, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think um, they haven't had as much of an uptake on it as, as they initially anticipated. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, I, I think... The big reason is people simply don't trust the government when it comes to, to income support issues, and uh, particularly when it comes to people who are currently on provincial social assistance. Um, you know, they've been up against a system that has done their best to, you know, give people really the bare minimum uh, of what they need to survive, and and so people are are kind of questioning well, is this a program that's really going to uh, uh, benefit me in the long run? And it, it, it is a different way of looking at income distribution from the provincial government's point of view. And, and to them, I certainly give them credit, but they also have to build trust with people. And I just don't think uh, there's been time to do that yet. And that's why they're reaching out to community agencies like uh, some of the local food banks and, and shelters and other social service agencies, uh, as well as us at the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, to, to really encourage people to think about applying for a basic income. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned earlier, there were 14,000 uh, application packages sent out, and these were done randomly, so it just wasn't to, uh, to people who are living on low income. It could have gone to uh, lots of people with uh, uh, higher incomes as well. Um, but they did it randomly so that they could could get a uh, a good uh, sample and a good selection of of, of the community. Uh, unfortunately, as as you indicated, lots of people um, haven't responded, so they're looking at new ways of, of being able to get the word out about basic income. And we'd we'd encourage people to apply if it's right for them. And it's not going to be right for everybody. And and some people may feel uncomfortable about doing it. But I've talked to lots of folks in the community who who think this could be a benefit for them. And they're they're willing to try it and and, and see what happens. What about the conditions for participating? Are, are, Are they perhaps turning some people off? Yeah, I, th- I think one of the uh, one of the first things that turns people off is the uh, initial application uh, package they receive, and it's forty pages. And uh, you know, again, wow. if, if if you're if you're if you're living in poverty and, and, yeah. and going from crisis to crisis in your life, um, yeah, maybe that's not uh, your first priority is to try to fill out a forty-page uh, application. Uh, some of the other it's challenges, really forty pages, Tom. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it can be it can be challenging. To go, wow. to go through, but that's one of the reasons why I think the provincial government has seen that it's it's beneficial to have in-person uh, sessions where yeah, I need a liaison. Yeah, yeah, people can sit down and and, and go through the uh, go through the information with a uh, provincial staff member. So that's one thing they're looking at doing now. I think one of the other challenges is we know lots of low-income people don't fill out their tax. Uh, that was what I was thinking. Does this, yeah. you know, by doing this, does this rope them in or trap them in some other way that they're, they're, yeah. caught, and they're, if, they're if cautious you, of? 
Yeah, and if you owe money to the government, perhaps, or if uh, if you're worried about maybe uh, having your income garnished from uh, you know from a collection agency, that could be a real concern, and that's something you have to look at. And and uh, our people must be concerned they would lose what they had. Exactly, and and uh, so there's very good questions, and, and people should be asking questions and and getting advice from local social service agencies or. Uh, or uh, other other people they trust in the community. Um, so there's uh, there's lots of questions, but I th- I think at the end of the day, this is a, a valuable um, social policy experiment, and it will improve the incomes of people who participate. Uh, our bottom line for supporting it as a as a poverty roundtable is ensuring nobody's worse off as a result, um, and th- and that certainly is is something we're reminding the government of that we really need to ensure that people are better off as a result. To participating in this project, uh, that they're given all the information up front, and uh, and that there's uh, open and transparent process. So we'll continue to push that forward and and do it do as well as we can in terms of uh, letting the community know that this program is available. What would happen once the test is over? Would people go back to where they were before? I'm sure that's a question as well. That is a question indeed, and it's uh, one we haven't got a good answer on from the provincial government yet. Um, we're not quite sure. Uh, one of the big issues, of course, is that we have a provincial election uh, that's about six or eight months away. And we don't know if the current government's still going to be in power three years from now. Um, if there's a different government, will they continue this program? Will there be some sort of transition to um, to get back on onto programs? Um, so picture yourself, Scott, if you're if you're a person who's received basic income, um, maybe you moved into a little bit more stable housing uh, because you had that extra income. Uh, and if you're if you're not sure whether the program's going to be cut off or not, uh, that yeah. could be a big big concern for you. Am I going to be able to stay in this housing, or um, or will I have to find something even cheaper? And we know you know right now in the rental housing market, there's very little out there that's a, that's affordable or uh, accessible for people who need need accessibility. Um, what did we you, you talked about uh, Manitoba experimenting with this in the 70s? Anything learned there that we can take from? Yeah, I think it, the the learnings were were very interesting because they did find that people uh, who participated in basic income uh, had healthier outcomes. Um, so they were less likely to to go to the doctor, less likely to use emergency rooms. Um, they stayed healthier because they had a little bit extra income and and they could keep themselves healthy. Maybe buy that medication or eat healthier, whatever it happened to be. Um, people were also, uh, from what I recall from the study, uh, you know, more inclined to uh, to find work that was better suited for them. And uh, so it wasn't like they were staying home, um, you know, playing video games or whatever. And don't even remember if there were video games in the yeah. 1970s. But um, that would have been Pong, Tom. Yeah, it would have been Pong. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> Pac-Man came out in the early 80s, right? But um, yeah, that wasn't the case. People uh, people actually wanted to uh, contribute to society. And in in my work here at the Poverty Roundtable and working with lots of great people who experience poverty, they all want the same thing. They want to be able to contribute. Uh, they want to be part of the solution. And uh, so basic income is is a way to help them get to do that. Um, because right now, social assistance rates are so low 
uh, that people are, are jolting from crisis to crisis, whether it's to the local food bank or uh, to, the, to the doctor's office or, or being able to uh, try to keep their housing. It's, it's a challenge day to day. And uh, if we can make their lives a little bit easier by providing a basic income, then certainly that's something I think we should, uh, we should try. Why wasn't Manitoba implemented? Why didn't why didn't it move on from there? Well, and here's another good lesson for Ontario because governments changed, right? Yeah. Uh, so the yeah. uh, government that brought it in, in the 1970s was a NDP government. Uh, they were replaced by a conservative government who didn't have the interest in in moving forward with the project. Um, there's other places around the world that are that are trying basic income as well. Um, uh, I think Finland's one. Uh, they've tried in the Netherlands, and there's a few places in the States as, uh, as well. And there's uh, been leaders in the United States, industrial leaders, uh, people like Elon Musk or uh, um, uh, Richard Branson from Virgin, uh, who's British actually, but, but they've both talked about uh, basic income as, as something that uh, they're supportive of. Uh, because they see the economy of the future as not being able to support the number of jobs we have today, but also realizing that people will need a base income to survive, and we also need to keep uh, keep money flowing uh, to keep uh, to ensure that those goods and, and services can continue to be purchased. Uh, so it, it's interesting, and I think this is going to be something uh, that Hamilton is. In, in a very real way, is going to be on uh, sort of the epicenter for uh, basic income uh, conversations over the next few years because the eyes of, uh, of North America are on this project. Uh, so there's lots of people who are, uh, who are interested. I had, um, I had a uh, documentary team from the Wall Street Journal, of all places, down a couple of weeks ago doing a, doing a little story on, on basic income. Um, because they're they're looking at it uh, from an economic perspective as well. So we'll see. Uh, I think uh, this is something we'll continue to, to follow over the next few years and hear lots more about. Uh, one quick question, and this is probably something you can't answer till after the experiment. Who is this right for? Who is this wrong for? And another thing, Tom, is that, you know, I, I understand your point about the change in government, but NDP's been back in Manitoba for a bazillion times since then. Why haven't they progressed with this? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess there wasn't the political will after the initial, uh, after the initial experiment. So who is this and- right for? Well, it's it's. I think it's right, uh, certainly for people who are who are working uh, today and uh, maybe not able to get a full time job, maybe not able to uh, get a job that pays above minimum wage. Um, so this is a supplement to to the low working income, and uh, I, I think that's really important. Certainly for people who are on Ontario Works, um, who are really again, I'll say it again. The, living on the lowest incomes in society. So a single person on Ontario Works getting just a little bit over $700 um, to live on. When you look at the cost of housing, um, an average one-bedroom rental unit can cost $700 or $800 a month in Hamilton. So already you're $100 behind. So the only uh, uh, shelter available to you is, is really stuff that's, that's unsafe and, mm. and probably unhealthy. Um, so for somebody who's on Ontario Works, this could be this could be a good fit for them, um, because it does potentially double double their income for the next three years. Um, for somebody who's uh, on Ontario Disability Support Program, however, I, th- I think it's they have to look at it very carefully because mm. there's other additional benefits you receive when you're when you're on. Uh, 
ODSP that uh, that might be taken away um, because one of the premises of basic income is that you just get the basic income. Yeah. You don't get any right. other support services. So that's something they have to look at very carefully and determine whether it's right for them. Tom Cooper is with us, Director of Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, talking about the Ontario uh, Basic Income Study, which is ongoing for the next uh, three years or so. Tom, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Playboy founder Hugh Hefner died at the age of 91. Uh, and, uh, of course, from what I understand, uh, uh, he was still living at the mansion, although the mansion had been sold. But one of the uh, caveats to it being sold, of course, or that uh, was that he got to stay in the mansion until uh, he passed away. And then, of course, was allowed to uh, uh, the transaction would take on after that. So what the history uh, or what the future rather holds for uh, the Playboy Mansion, I'm really not sure f- at this point. And I'm sure all of that will come out uh, in the wash later on. Uh, of course, he created Playboy magazine, spun it into a, a giant media uh, empire, uh, initially, of course, uh, with Marilyn Monroe as the initial pinup girl. And, uh, and then went from there into uh, uh, the Playboy clubs and series like Playboy After Dark, syndicated TV shows. Uh, and then, you know, once video came in, it seemed to be a whole different world and the magazine uh, seemed to falter. To talk more about all of this and the brand, Alyssa Freeman is with us, public relations consultant. You can read her stuff at HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily. Now with us, uh, hello, Alyssa. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Well, hello, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. How big is this brand? And how big is it now? Well, we're talking about Nike, right? What what do you think? What are your thoughts on Playboy? Oh, on Playboy. Why we? Why'd you think Nike? I don't know because that's another brand that's been on my mind this morning. I'm sorry. No, we're talking about Hugh Hefner here, and and you know, I heard I heard last night that he had passed away at the age of 91, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, wow. What was he doing before he passed away? That's it. Well, there's there's the jokes, right? What did he die of? Viagra overdose? (laughs) You know, if he'd only lived a clean life, Alyssa, maybe he would have made a (laughs) hundred. Because he lived that sinful life, he only made 91. <laughs> Poor guy. It's exactly guy. just been, must have been hell for him. But uh, when I when I saw this story, I thought, wow, that's a big deal. And then I thought, maybe it's. <laughs> I don't think it is a big deal anymore. Is it? Is this brand still relevant? Well, I think it's relevant for what it did. And you know, I've been going through my Facebook feed on this, and uh, mainly women. I will be honest with that. Mainly women, and they are extremely disdainful. Like, I have a comment right here, and she says, Hefner was 91 and lived the last 50 years of his life like a pimp. He helped to mass commercialize the commodification of women's bodies and to pathologically perpetuate Eurocentric beauty standards that women of color are still being harmed to by this day. People, I mean, honestly, when, you know, when when I was first asked to talk about this, you know, is this a big deal? It is a big deal. It is a big deal because this is this is the first guy that honestly in a at a time like in the late fifties when this was absolute taboo to sort of um, articulate men's fantasies and then create an entire business and objectification about women's of women's bodies of it. 
So it was really something that perpetuated much of what we as women are dealing with today. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hang on. I'm gonna bring you in uh, into the discussion, Alyssa, uh, if you don't mind at all. Uh, we want to bring in now Cheryl Hickey, host of Entertainment Tonight Canada. She is with us. We'll ask her the same question we we asked you. Thanks for joining us, Cheryl. Do you think this brand is still as relevant as it once was? Do I think? I'm sorry, with the cutoff in the very beginning. Do I think what? Do you think the brand of Playboy is as valid as it once was? Hmm. I think it was I think it was really valid in its heyday. I don't know that it is as valid today. I mean, certainly um I think it it opened a lot of conversation and I think that now with the with the internet and um I think people are are thinking larger than they ever have before. Um so I think it the times are just certainly different. Uh <sighs> I, I got up. Uh, I saw this last night. The story in the news last night, and I'm thinking, "Wow, that's a big deal." And then I was wondering, "Is it a big deal? Is it as relevant? How do you think people will view this passing?" Oh, it's interesting. It's every. There seems to be a lot of outpouring and a lot of of love for him uh, today. Um, you know, everyone. You know, from the very superficial stuff, knows him as the bathrobe wearing icon. You know, famous for the Playboy Mansion and the parties and the, the dignitaries who would come to the grotto and, and, um, and then certainly the celebrities that, uh, that that Playboy built or certainly introduced to the world from the Pamela Andersons to the Shannon Tweeds and the list goes on. Um, so I think it's, today's a day where people are sort of looking back and, and kind of looking at how far this businessman came. You know, certainly it was all on the backs of these women and he made a lot of money on that. Um, so it's, that's certainly something that we can't forget. But there was, there was a lot of opportunity that was born um, out of what he did. Will he get the recognition of that because of making the money on, as you put it, the backs of those women? I mean, that's certainly viewed a lot differently now than it was back then. Absolutely. You're, you're 100% right. I think it will, because I think what he did do is he did open the door for conversations that people didn't want to have. Um, and I think that was one thing that magazine did do well. Um, and whether you agree with what was on the cover or not, there was, you know, there actually was good conversation inside the magazine from time to time. Yes, there and were apparently the people that read it for the articles. I mean, well, the, the, listen, and, and, that's, that's a joke, but it's legitimately true. There were things in there that 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 sparked conversation and um that was a good thing you know uh we understand that uh the house the mansion has been sold uh had been sold and that he was allowed to stay in it un- until his death any news there any any information on what's going to happen of the what's going to become of the mansion no nothing has been released today as of yet but i mean we will we're we're still working on the story today for ET Canada and and getting lots of reaction and certainly finding out you know what's what's the next step what's going to happen with this this legacy of this this man i mean what we do know is he passed peacefully at home with his wife and his children and his his entire family there um which is a beautiful thing and i mean in, in the, i think it was in the 90s or the late 80s he bought the plot beside Marilyn Monroe, right. which was the first cover curl uh, for Playboy. So he will be resting beside her, which is um, some saying are poetic. But uh, is, isn't that something, Cheryl? Because you've got a story yeah. in death as well as in life. My goodness, it keeps you know the story continues. I think it does, and I think you know whether you liked him or you didn't. He was a polarizing figure. 
um, he marks a, a moment in time when things changed, you know, um, things were, things were changing. And so I think he started a very, very big conversation that needed to be had. Is where does it leave that industry? Obviously it's changed a lot with the internet and stuff. Will, will, will there be another icon, if you can use that word, like Hugh Hefner that, that stood no. for sexuality and, and no. freedom that way? No, because I think, Sadly, uh, listen, you know, well, that's a whole other conversation. When you talk about the Internet, it's the Wild West right now, which is kind of sad for kids and families who are trying to, you know, keep their kids safe online. I think when Playboy was around, it was a different time, and those magazines were under the beds at Mom and Dad, you know, whatever it was. Um, So I don't think there will be another Hugh Hefner, no. Cheryl Hickey has been with us, host of Entertain, uh, ET Canada, Entertainment Tonight Canada, and of course, make sure you're watching tonight to see more on this story. And I'm wearing pajamas, by the way. I'd just like <laughs> to point out on the show today, no joke, tune in, oh, I'm wearing man. my jam and I am. And what are the boys wearing? Are they going to be in bunny outfits or what? They don't get to wear, oh, wouldn't that be? <laughs> I think that's what you should do. You should come out I... wearing the pajamas, make them wear the bunny suit. You know what? You and I, we... I like you. you. I like you a lot. You're welcome, Cheryl. I, I'm going to be watching tonight, and if I see if I see Ross come out in a bunny outfit, I'll know exactly why. And I'll say to my wife, who faithfully watches, look, look yes. what happened. All right. That uh, sounds good. Cheryl, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Take care, love. All right. Bye. Take care. Uh, let's bring back in, of course, uh, Alyssa Freeman, who's who's been with us, and, of course, uh, a branding expert. Uh, will this brand continue to the, do you think, Alyssa, do you think it'll be as just as strong or is it one of those things that now that he's passed, it's time to die? Well, you know, it's one of these things. I mean, it's all about supply and demand. And, you know, the internet sort of uh, did Playboy in, whereas it was one of a kind. It was on a, on a higher shelf in the uh, magazine store. It was under a bed as uh, Cheryl just mentioned. So it was it had like a very sort of scandalous um, aura attached to it. So if you saw uh, a Playboy somewhere, you know, you could you know, furtively uh, flip through it and see all you know, the pictures of the naked women in between a, a good article or two. But um, honestly, I, I think what they've tried to do is actually revive the magazine as uh, sort of a backlash to internet porn. Um, internet porn basically killed Playboy. Yeah. You know, Hugh Hefner kind of carried the brand by himself through his association with Playboy, uh, the generating the brand to begin with, and also the Playboy Mansion. Uh, remember like a if couple... it died, if it died, I wouldn't cry. Yeah. You know, I mean, I understand what Cheryl said, but... You know, honestly, yeah, he started a conversation, but in the first place, the conversation didn't even need to be had had he not done what he did. Well, if he hadn't, somebody else would have. I mean, there were certainly lots in the wings that were ready to to take his place. Uh, They decided uh, a while ago to get rid of the nudes. They've now brought that back. Mm -hmm. What does that exercise say? Is that them searching, um, or does it define what Playboy is? I think it defines what our culture is, Scott, not just what Playboy is. So, you know... Um, Playboy is reacting to what the needs of the public are. So you can't have a business if you don't have people that will buy or look or see or watch or eat. So they have to consume your product in some sort of way. So, you know, if there is a demand for that, um, you know, clearly there is. So if there is a demand for that, then 
it will it will continue. Uh, the but, image the yeah. image way back when pipe smoking guy dignified. I vaguely remember seeing clips of of Playboy after dark and you know sort of the tuxedo Dean Martin Frank Sinatra kind yeah, of yeah those were the those were the days yeah right? exactly and you know um, that being but said that was just a veneer Scott like come on. Let's just say that that was a veneer. So, you know, when you're talking about debauchery, you can dress it up any way you want. Yeah. I know this wasn't what you thought maybe you'd get out of me today. Well, I'm I'm never (laughs) sure what I'm going to get out of you, Alyssa. No, I I guess what I'm talking about is there was a certain, and, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing how ridiculous I am sounding. Don't worry. Uh, Don't worry. You're just, listen, you're just. I'm just a man trying to defend it. That's all I'm doing. I'm just a dirty old man trying to defend it. I'm just a man. You've got to understand what it meant to me as a (laughs) 14-year-old. Hey, uh, okay, I'll tell the story. Uh, I was joking with my kids. You know, everybody talks about the sex ed curriculum and whatever. It's like, of course we need it because our kids know more about sex than we ever knew at that age. When I was a kid and I was a Cub Scout, we'd had a thing called a paper drive. It was when the whole recycling thing started. We used to go around and collect people's uh, newspapers and stuff, and we'd take them to a boxcar in town and throw them up there. And yeah, when you ran into a stash of Playboys, woo-wee. They never made it to the boxcar. That's right. Where did the fifth troop go? I don't know. They're hiding somewhere. Where did they go? We've lost them. They're off behind a boxcar somewhere. But but you're right. It has changed. But back then, so really the classiness, the dignif- you know, the way it was sort of dignified, that was just a front for good old-fashioned it's just sex. It's naked women. It well, didn't sure it didn't it didn't have a higher bar than that. I mean, you know, and it, it, you know, during its height, it, its articles, they did have some respected journalists there. Oh, um, yeah. Well, and did, what about the letters or was it in in what was Bob Name and address withheld. Yeah, exactly. And what was Bob Cuccioni's <laughs> publication? Um Penthouse. There. Yeah, but Pe- Playboy Playboy was articles. a bit but Penthouse, <laughs> Penthouse was a lot more uh, graphic and and guttural than Playboy. Yeah, Playboy seemed yeah, to have yeah. more of a... You're not buying any of this, are you? Well, it is what it is. I mean, you know... If and now you're saying, and now I know what you are, Scott. Is that what you're saying to me, Alyssa? No, no, no. Listen, <laughs> listen it, it, it's all what people want to consume. And it's like you say, if one person's going to provide it, and if one person doesn't, somebody else will come in and fill the gap. And he hit on something. And at the time, it was revolutionary. I mean, people called him the, you know, sort of the forerunner of the 60s uh, sex revolution. And don't also forget that Gloria Steinem, in order to make a point about, um, you know, feminism, what did she do? She was a very good looking woman. She applied. She got a job at the Playboy Club and Mm -hmm. and walked around as as a bunny uh, to make a point. So, you know, when you think about what it started, you know, in many cases, that is correct. It did start a conversation, a conversation that people were afraid to have it outside of the bedroom or in whispers. And so suddenly you're putting sex front and center and people are shocked. People think about it all the time, but nobody ever wanted to stake a a business idea on it. And he did. And when, you know, and all you had to look was human nature and, and you know, I don't know how many focus groups you needed, but honestly, if you got a group of 10 guys, I think they'd all say the same thing. Mm. And he made a business of it and it was shocking and it was 
scandalous and it was successful. But at the same time, it really had, I mean, listen, I don't think he was thinking about the downside of the objectification of women Mm. and what the ideal woman is supposed to look like. And if it was in Playboy, she was gorgeous. She was perfect. She was unblemished. She was mainly white and she was mainly blonde. And what that did was, is it set up an ideal that is still an ideal, you know, 50 years later. Yeah. No, very true. Uh, is what we have now better? So in other words, there is no Playboy. Nobody buys that anymore. If anybody wants to see porn, they go on the internet and ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. There it is. No articles, no pipe, no satin pajamas, no classiness, no nothing. Well, is that better? I don't know about the classiness, Scott. I mean, <laughs> let's not go too far. I mean, there were... Are, are you saying, that, are you, are you, are you saying that there's more classiness in porn or there wasn't very much in Can Playboy? I tell you, those pajamas were not satin. I just read they were silk because sheets are oh, made out of silk. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I mean, you know what? Listen, he was a legitimate pimp. He was a legitimized pimp. Yeah. And when women came to the Playboy Mansion, it just wasn't for the pictures. Maybe sometimes it was to show the parties and the so-called classiness life, lifestyle of it all. Mm-hmm. But honestly, they were there for one reason. To have sex. And one reason only, and it was to have sex. So uh, the whole upper crust thing was just a facade? It was just it allowed him to sell it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Made he it palatable. An image. He was selling an ideal and, it, you know, what would make it more idealistic than naked women? What could you cr- possibly do to create a wrap around that to make this look more than just porn? And the more than just porn was the mansion. It was the parties. It was, it was the celebrities attached to it. Listen, I used to watch Sex in the City, and I remember an episode when they went to the Playboy Mansion. And it was because it was hip. It was cool. It was like you were invited. You were in. Plus, it was also in- the era of decadence. Yeah, exactly. It was, it, and and it fed whether it was a lot of that, whether right? it was rock and roll or movies or or any of that stuff, or or just um, showiness and such as you know the eighties and the nineties of of expense and lavish. You know the days of when we used to watch Dallas and lifestyles of the rich and famous. You know that all fit right into that. <laughs> oh man, oh I've never thought about it that way, but you're right. Uh, what about, about it, right? what about Playgirl? I remember when it came out. Uh, I believe yeah. Burt Reynolds was in in it oh, for. I have no idea what you're talking about, Scott. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just remember my mother and my aunt having a copy somewhere and giggling it around at some house party we were at. But uh, I think there were more. I think there was more laughter than anything. <laughs> yeah, I bought a Playgirl once, or did I buy it? Did I you read the articles, or was it for the pictures? No, please, yeah, no. And I think it was sort of a, an attempt at uh, equalization. I don't think it was as successful as people thought it was. I mean, I, I could understand that, it, you know, where it was coming from. And also, it was like a, a good idea. Okay, listen, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, I think it, I don't know how, I can't remember how long Playgirl lasted, but it, it didn't last certainly as long. And it just sort of petered out, so to speak. Good choice of word. I um, wasn't going to say it. As uh, soon as it came out of my oh, mouth, no, thought, you know me. I'll point oh. out anything. He's not going to let me get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so will something replace this? Where is sexuality now in society? Internet. It is porn. So it's, yeah. It is, it's not as, I mean, it is. It's so not as classy, is right it, Alyssa? It's not as classy as it once was. It's not. You know, Porn's gone stuff. down the. <laughs> it's gone down the tubes. <laughs> 
Such a shame, Scott. No, I mean, listen, you've got women on webcams, you've got people doing sexual acts whenever you want to watch them. Mm. You know, uh, porn is the ultimate con- is, is the ultimate of consumer consumption. What are the most hits on yeah. any on any website? Yeah. You know, if you look at an industry, number one, it's not gaming. Yeah. You know, it's not makeup tutorials. It's porn. So people are still making tons and tons of money out of it. And as long as there's men and as long as there's women and as long as there's fantasy, there will be a place for porn. Did Hugh Hefner do anything positive? Anything Let good? And, and, and I'm, you know, obviously that's from, a, I'm, I'm asking from a women's perspective, woman's Let perspective, not from a guy's. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so is that a stupid question, Alyssa? Was that a dumb question? No, it wasn't. Actually, it, it, it is a good question. And I think that the answer to that is is that, and Cheryl sort of hit this on the head, at the, forget it. She said that um, it did start a conversation. I missed that one. Thank God. It did one. start a conversation. It did. it did. It brought something that was formerly taboo out into the open. So it did start a conversation between men and between women. But I have to say that I don't think that he thought that far down the road. Like, if you ask Hugh Hefner back Mm. in the 50s, does he think that this is something that is going to affect, you know, man and womankind for the next half century? I think he just would have been happy for, you know, five to ten years. Yeah, good point. Alyssa Freeman, sorry, go ahead real quick. No, no, no. I don't need to belabor my feminist point here. Now, you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's, it's been a double entendre kind of day. It really okay, has. Scott. And that last one flew right over my head. I'll All leave it right. at that. Good. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Netflix, are you in? I mean, who isn't? If you're watching Ozark. You know, I've only seen a little bit of uh, my wife and, and kids are like, they've burned through it already. And uh, I've just watched little bits and pieces as they've been watching. Um, but that's my next one. Uh, so Netflix, a lot of people talking about, uh, you know, Netflix, of course, started with relatively low price. It's gone up a little bit, but still pretty cheap. And many are saying in Canada they cannot compete with this and want Netflix taxed up the bejeebers in order to have a level playing field. Now we hear Netflix will be spending at least $500 million over the next five years on production and distribution of Canadian content. There is your tax. Uh, No tax for Netflix, but they're making them invest in the country. This is part of an agreement that will be the center of Ottawa's new cultural policy. To talk more about all of this, Greg O'Brien is with his editor and publisher, cart.ca, to find out more. He's with us now. Greg, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, should we be surprised by this at all? Are you surprised we went this direction? And is this, in your mind, just uh, a way to get the tax out of them? Um, at first, I would say yes, but since I've seen the announcement today, I would say no. Um, it's more than just $500 million being thrown at the problem, um, because Netflix has announced they're going to establish a film and production, a film and television production center here in Canada. Uh, it's the first one they've done outside the United States. So they're going to be spending $500 million on content, but also on building out a presence here. Why would Netflix be interested in doing this? Why are they investing in Canada? Well, there, there are a bunch of tax breaks they can take advantage of uh, by producing content in Canada and made by Canadians. And the Canadian film and television production industry is second to none, really. 
Um, the dollar is cheaper here. Um, you know, Ontario and Toronto and other municipalities and regions give them uh, tax breaks to uh, to come and shoot here. Uh, the writers are great here. All, you know, all the support is really good here. So, um, you know, Canada is a really excellent place uh, for them to come and make TVs and TV and movies uh, in. Um, and they're, it's, you know, it's close to their headquarters in the States as well. How do you think this will change the production or uh, any of this landscape in, in Canada? How do you think, what do you think the, especially if they do end up building a studio here, what, what will that mean for the industry? Well, it sure will increase competition um, to get the best shows. Um, you know, if, if you're a, a TV producer, do you want to sell your show so that it's available on CBC or Global or Bell Media? Or do you want to sell it to Netflix and it's available around the world? Um, you know, that's, uh, that, that's going to be key. I mean, there's going to be serious competition just to buy the rights. Um, you know, and another reason why Netflix might be doing this, too, is because if you look overseas in France, uh, France has just announced that they're going to be launching a 2% tax for all over-the-top video providers um, that are making money in France but don't have a presence there. So this is a way for Netflix to say, okay, we're going to spend half a billion and, uh, you know, nobody has to talk about taxing us anymore. Uh, is this as much an issue as it used to be when we used to talk about Canadian content laws and rules? Or obviously technology ha- has changed all of this, but we hear so much from people in the industry that there really aren't Canadian shows or this or that or the other. They're pretty much international, plucking people from all, all over the place for these productions. Is that more and more the case and is it less about Canadian content? It really depends on the story. I mean, you know, if you know, if, if you're talking about, you know, look at the, the CBC show Kim's Convenience. I mean, that's a real sort of Canadian immigrant story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but if you're talking about, say, Alias Grace, that is completely out of the imagination of Margaret Atwood. You know, a Canadian writer, but is it Canadian? Yeah, you could say so, but it's really, you know, it's really a story that can relate mm-hmm. all around the world. So. Um, you know, it, it kind of goes story by story how you can perceive the way things are. But the whole Canadian content business is not necessarily about telling Canadian stories. It's about having a Canadian industry, employing Canadians in a creative, uh, wealthy industry. Have we made that distinction yet? Have we made, or is it all just about the Canadian identity? Is it about the Canadian identity or is it about just having a strong, stable industry? It's both. It, it, it really is both. I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of... Uh, programs and things that have been produced, you know, that are sort of, you know, good medicine for you. You know, there are stories, you know, documentaries about the the North or the downtrodden or, you know, the specific pockets of the country. You know, that that's kind of stuff that's real Canadiana that people really like. But, you know, most people are looking to be entertained, um, you know, at a level where they're not too concerned about what country it's from. You know, there's some good Chinese documentaries and Australian dramas out there. Um, you know, everyone just wants to be entertained, and hopefully with, you know, as the rules are modernized, because that was part of the Minister of Heritage uh, release uh, today, as the rules are modernized, um, you know, we'll have uh, a different viewpoint of what Canadian content is uh, going forward because of the way um, the media has changed globally. You use the, wa- the word modernized. Uh, do you think those that were hoping for some sort of regulation or tax or, or whatever, uh, how disappointed are they right now? 
Uh, I'm not sure just yet. Um, I think they're happy that there's new money coming in, but they're probably disappointed that it's not being contributed the same old way because that's the way they're used to. Mm. Um, if I was to be upset, uh, you know, if I was to be anybody who was upset, I might be if I was a traditional broadcaster because you still have to spend 30% of your revenues on producing Canadian content under the old way. Um, you know, when you buy Crave TV, when you go to check out, you have to pay HST at the end and you don't for Netflix. So that's, you know, that's hard when you're competing face to face in front of the consumer. So there are certain hiccups that are still there that are kind of unfair uh, for the existing players. Um, but hopefully those are sorted out as this new process that was announced uh, works its way through because it also involves overhauling our broadcasting and telecom acts, which is going to take another two years. Uh, obviously, uh, the minister said uh, their approach is not to bail out uh, industry models that are no longer uh, viable. That being said, are you surprised they didn't put a, a, something like a GST on this? Um, a little bit. Um, I had heard going into it, though, that uh, the, the finance minister and the prime minister's office uh, weren't interested in between budget cycles uh, to, to do that. Um, there have been some people say that, you know, with Netflix establishing a presence here, uh, you know, with offices and, and, and employees and things like that, now they'll have to start charging uh, HST anyway. That might take care of itself. Um, you know, there's, and it's funny, we're still in the big transition point. There's so much of the industry that is still working with the old model, and it's working fine. I mean, ages 45 and up, they watch tons and tons and tons of television the old-fashioned way. Why should the companies abandon those people who don't want to switch, uh, you know, to to streaming things or, or something like that. You know, there, there's going to be a whole bunch of different models as we move through. There'll still be linear TV, there'll be fewer channels, and there'll be a whole host of ways to get streamed content over the internet to whatever device you like. In the end, isn't the only thing that's changing is the method of distribution, or because of that, the models have to be totally retorqued as well? It's both. I mean, the big thing changing is the method of distribution and the fact that sort of the the borders are coming down. You know, you used to have a... Uh, and content is king again, really. Yeah, and, and there's so much out there. Who can watch it all, right? It's uh, You've got it from all around the world, and there used to be a high barrier of entry. If you wanted to get on TV, it was really difficult. You had to go to the company with a big transmitter and, you know, produce a really uh, professional uh, show if you could even get a meeting with them or in, you know, in the door. But now you can, you know, you can do a YouTube series, get noticed that way, and then get on to get onto the bigger screens uh, just from, you know, from sort of kicking in the door your own way. Where does this leave the traditional players when it comes to content? I mean, you know, we were watching the Emmys a, a while back, and man, it was... You know, network, old-fashioned network, uh, traditional uh, shows just weren't there. I mean, it was all this type of programming, all these neat uh, new uh, new forms that are producing this stuff. Uh, as I said before, content is king. Will we see, how come the smaller players can do it, but the bigger ones can't? Well, I mean, they're all in dogfights for, uh, for for good content. You know, uh, Shonda Rhimes is, uh, you know, she's a huge uh, showrunner in the States. Um, you know, um, some of her shows, like you know, uh, uh, to get away with murder is, is one of her shows. Um, she has gone from ABC, the old guys, to Netflix, the new guys, um, because there's more creative freedom there. Uh, you know, you can binge shows, you can send the set them, you know, set them all up to run one after another after another. You can be a little bit more, a little bit more risque with the content and the language. 
um, you know, the, these traditional guys are just in dogfights for for the good content and the good writers and the good producers, um, and that's that's not going to change. It's only going to intensify. But if you if you're the winner of that great content, you know, if you want to watch Walking Dead, you've got to subscribe to American Movie Classics, uh, you know, because they have that really popular piece of content. And I think what you're going to see is more and more. Um, you know, fragmentation where to get all of your content, you're going to have to buy it from 25, 30, 50 different sources. Uh, we are seeing that fragmentation. Why is, does that mean, though, not inferior programming? Well, it, it's, it's all, it all depends on what, you, what you're willing to pay for. You know, you can find, you know, if, if you're looking at the old system where, you know, 35 million Canadians is really all you're appealing to, um, and you have to get into the old-style broadcaster. But let's say you have a story that would appeal to, you know, say, 500,000 Canadians. But what if it's a story that would appeal to 500,000 Canadians, but it would also appeal to a similar number of Americans mm. and different all around the world? All of a sudden, if you go all around through all these countries where you're able to, to release it on Netflix as one platform, you suddenly have a massive audience that you can build just by crossing borders. What can we learn from what the music industry went through when it comes to things like this, when it comes to Netflix, when it comes to visual content? Well, I mean, I, I think those lessons have been learned because all of the traditional companies have acted and made their most of their content available on multiple platforms. You know, Bell has Crave, Roger, Rogers tried with Show Me, um, you know, but they, they do have different uh, on-demand windows uh, that you can get things, you know, City TV Go, for example. Um, you know, the music industry is a bit different because their whole industry was built around selling this thing, the CD, you know, where the, the packaging and the shipping of that thing was mm. really expensive. And when that was taken out, a whole lot of middlemen and women lost their jobs. Um, there really is no thing like that in TV other than the DVD industry, which is, which is still there. Um, but uh, there, there's no real thing. It's just it's the delivery. It's always been really hard to pump video um, through an internet connection where audio is, is much lighter in terms of data, so you can get that through easily. But video has always been heavier, and it still is a problem. I mean, when Dayzone launched uh, with the NFL uh, this season with Sunday Ticket, they had real problems their first few weeks because of you know different people's internet uh, service and the compression and all the rest of it, mm. so they weren't getting the signal as stable as they used to. What role will NAFTA play in these discussions? Because uh, there's been lots of chatter, uh, and obviously with Netflix and the tax, the, 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 you know, do you think that that played a role in in the way this was structured? The, the discussions that are going on now with NAFTA. NAFTA is still. I mean, people really just don't know what's going to happen with NAFTA. Um, you know, the the current U.S. president is nuts. Um, you know, and the negotiators will, uh, you know, will sort of do their own thing and try and find common ground. There is a cultural ex- exemption for Canada within NAFTA. There have been rumors that the U.S. would like that out and have free access to, you know, our airwaves to buy our telecom companies and all of that. But it's really everything is just kind of rumor at this point, um, you know, and, and there are certain lines in the sand that perhaps the Canadian government won't cross, but we really don't know what they are because it's still relatively early in those negotiations. Uh, are, is there any surprises in this cultural policy that was unveiled? Is there anything that, should, that uh, is there that shouldn't be, vice versa? Uh, not in my, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was only announced this morning, so I haven't exactly, uh, you know, gone through it line by line, but uh, 
the most surprising thing and pleasantly surprising thing was the uh, the Netflix coming to Canada with a significant investment and not just throwing money at production. They're actually going to do original productions and establish a base here. They're going to sink money into French language programming. Um, you know, the minister herself talks about uh, gender parity in, in the, uh, the entertainment world. There's also going to be a, a, a look at Indigenous uh, voices as well. Uh, when it comes to TV and radio, so there's a lot of good, a lot of really good stuff in there. But I've got to plow through it some more before I can pronounce anything really. It looks like an opportunity now. Could this be a big player moving in that perhaps stifles the industry in some way? Uh, I, you know, sure. I guess if you know if you wanted to take that point of view, I mean, I guess that that could happen. But um, you know, I, I really can't see it. There's too much that the traditional players still do. You know, with uh, news and sports and, you know, just, you know, doing local journalism. And there's still a massive, massive amount of people that watch linear TV and still a ton of people that watch off-air TV, believe it or not. I mean, that's still a very viable option. If you're in Hamilton and have a digital antenna, you could put one up and get about 20 channels in Mm. uncompressed, pristine, high definition like you've never seen before. You know, it's just going to be such a hodgepodge of different ways to uh, to get TV signals. I mean, there will be far fewer linear TV channels, that's for sure. Um, but there's going to be so many different ways to uh, to find different chunks of video, whether it's sports, drama, comedy, news, you name it. You're going to be clicking across all sorts of different uh, different portals. So, uh, and you know, you can never do this, but say you're to look out 10 years, are we going to see more and more options or are we going to see a more uh, defined system? You, you know, it's almost like the days of VHS and beta. Which way is it going to go? Uh, <laughs> will, it, will it continue to be, <laughs> then there was only two choices. Uh, w- will it continue to be that way, or or will we will we get some sort of uh, some sort of consistency here? I think you're going you're going to see a lot of fragmentation in sort of the near to medium term, where you're going to have a lot of people splitting out and doing their own thing. Disney has already said they're taking their movies off of Netflix, for example, and launching their own thing. You know, you've got DAZN in in Canada taking a Sunday ticket away from the cable guys. So there's going to be a lot of splitting, and then you're going to see a big contraction, I think, after that. I don't know when that's going to be, but that that's sort of always what happens in business. So you're going to see, you know, four or five big players, except this time they'll be global players. You know, so Google, Apple, Facebook, whatever it might be, might own a lot of these video companies all around the world. Hmm. And that will put real pressure on, you know, doing things in, in not just in Canada, but in other smaller countries. Because, you know, if you wanted to... You know, take CTV News, for example, if they were all of a sudden owned by CBS, you know, would there be a, a six o'clock news program anymore in Toronto or would they just have a Toronto correspondent who did the odd thing here and there? You know, there's a whole lot of things that are going to happen down the road that you really can't see. Um, but fragmentation first and then probably reconsolidation uh, later. Do you think Netflix will always be a prominent player here? What do they have to do to stay relevant? Obviously, they're expanding into production. That seems to be the key. Uh, is that is that where their growth is? Yeah, they're following the HBO, uh, uh, you know, sort of rules. Right. You know, HBO used to just do uh, movie repeats, and then, you know, with The Sopranos, uh, they started doing original programming. So that's what really Netflix is doing. But, they're, you know, look at Netflix is spending... Uh, between six and seven billion dollars in the next twelve months uh, months on original programming, and that's uh, two and a half times the size of the entire Canadian broadcast industry. Um, you know, so 
when you look at it that way, it, it's, it, it can be a little frightening. Are we going to see the prices of Netflix go up? Yes, absolutely. They just went up now. It's, it's up to yeah. ten ninety nine again. Um, again, you know, yeah, it's it's going to continue to rise. Um, you know, unless they give in to the siren song of of advertising, because uh, I I can tell you every brand in the world would love to advertise within Netflix. Um, mm. I, I their subscription price only has to rise because they're they're not even profitable. Um, Kojiko Cable is more profitable than Netflix. Greg O'Brien has been you, you with us. Look it up. <laughs> I, I have heard that that they're that they're still having a hard time turning a profit. Greg O'Brien is with us, editor and publisher, Cart.ca, talking about Netflix spending at least uh, five hundred million over the next five years uh, on production and distribution of Canadian content. Uh, Greg, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred CHML.